0: Hello, my name is David Ades. I'm a poet based in Sydney and the host of a monthly poetry podcast called Poets Corner in association with West Words in Parramatta in Sydney's West. West Words is Western Sydney's literature development organisation. Poets Corner is part of West Words public programming that celebrates the richness, diversity and insight that literature offers, especially in these times we thank the ongoing support of Create New South Wales, the Cultural Fund of Copyright Australia, City of Parramatta Council, Blacktown City Council, and Campbelltown City Council, as well as the many project partners that have enabled us to continue to provide opportunities to writers and audiences. We hope that this new world will see us sharing and a closeness of spirit. So each month, I invite a poet to read poems and talk about them for an hour or so on a theme of the poet's choice. Our guest poet today, whom I will introduce in a moment, is Paul Hetherington, who will read poems and talk on the theme of travel. But before um, I do that, I always like to start with an acknowledgement of country. I'm recording this from Beecroft in Sydney, and Paul is recording from Canberra in the Australian Capital Territory. I would like to pay my respects to and acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging of the Wellameda people the traditional custodians of the land in Beecroft, and also of the Naganawal, Ngambri and Ngarrigo peoples, the traditional custodians of the land in Canberra, and to acknowledge also that they are the sovereign owners of their land, which has never been ceded or given up. So Paul Hetherington. Paul is a distinguished Australian poet. He has published 15 full length collections of poetry and prose poetry, including the co-authored Epistolary Prose Poetry Sequence Fugitive Letters, which came out in 2020, and Typewriter and Manuscript Life Before Man, also in 2020, along with 11 poetry chapbooks. He has won or been nominated for more than 30 national and international awards and competitions. In 2014, Six Different Windows won the Western Australian Premier's Book Awards for the best poetry book published in Australia. And in 2017, Burnt Umber was shortlisted for the Kenneth Slessor Prize. Paul undertook an Australia Council residency at the B.R. Whiting Studio in Rome in 2015, 2016. He is professor of writing in the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra, head of the International Poetry Studies Institute, (IPSI), and joint founding editor of the international online journal, Axon, Creative Explorations. He founded the International Prose Poetry Group in 2014 with Cassandra Atherton. He is co-author of Prose Poetry, An Introduction, Princeton University Press, 2020, and a co-editor of Anthology of Australian Prose Poetry*, MUP 2020. 2020 was a big year for you, Paul. A lot of publications there. Welcome to Poets Corner.
1: Uh, Thanks, David. Yeah, great to be here. Um,
0: So you've chosen travel as your theme um, in a year when many of us can't, at least in the conventional sense, travel. So it it resonates. And you've taken, from what I can see from the poems that you've sent, uh, a wide angled lens on the subject, not confining yourself to stereotypical notions of travel, but seeing many aspects of life and living through the lens or metaphor of travel. So before reading any poems, can you explore a bit about your thinking behind choosing this theme and what it means to you?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I think it partly did come out of the experience. Uh, last year and ongoing into 2021, sadly, uh, of not being able to travel and I've got family members in different parts of Australia and also overseas. So for me, it's been quite a a change. And I also love travel and um, the kind of experience of entering and I suppose manoeuvring through uh, different cultures, both in terms of contemporary cultures and also thinking about the historical Uh, resonances of different places so for me it's been quite uh, a change and so I thought it was maybe worth reflecting on that but also poetry you know poetry for me has always been a form of traveling um, uh, and and lots of different forms of traveling in fact uh, simultaneously so for example you know when I was a you know an 11 year old and decided I wanted to write poetry and you know when I think back on that I think well you know, I, I think I was a bit kind of maybe even a little bit depressed as an 11-year-old or a bit preoccupied, you know, self-absorbed, preoccupied with ideas, which perhaps I wasn't really ready for in a way. Um, I guess for me poetry was a way of traveling beyond the sort of the daily kind of life I lived and, and my experience at school. Although in grade six, it was also a way of uh, kind of joining with a teacher's kind of aspirations I think who for some reason thought that I had you know some talents as a writer so there was a kind of confluence happening but also for me it was a a way into an imaginative space uh, which I needed to travel into I think because I've always lived as as strongly if not more strongly in my imagination than than I do in the real world which is you know kind of one of those things which is both a curse and a blessing I guess so yeah yeah, poetry poetry and travel it's always been gone hand in hand.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in you saying that because uh, what I read in these poems is a, a tremendous amount of play between concrete detail and the imagination. And both, thing, both things are working at once, uh, as we'll come to see when you read them. Um, just a couple more quick questions before you do read them, though. Um, I'm interested in why it was travel as such rather than what, what to me has been always my sort of um, conventional metaphor, and that is journey. Do you see a difference between travel and journey or is it encapsulating the same sort of thing?
1: Well, to some extent, the same kind of thing. But, yeah, journey has got, I don't know, for me, journey as a word I think has got quite a lot of gravitas and I wasn't sure that maybe I didn't want that level of gravitas when I was uh, kind of suggesting an idea. Also, travel, I don't know, travel for me is, is... it suggests to me shifting from one place to another in all sorts of different ways whereas journeying I kind of think of it as something that when I think of the word journey I often think of that Kavafi poem where you know he's kind of trying to find Ithaca you know it's a life yeah. long thing or or something which has got a, a real purpose even though obviously in the kavafi poem uh, in the end the journey becomes the purpose rather than destination being the purpose but yeah so i suppose travel i think perhaps glances across a number of different different areas more likely
0: Mm. and i can't let you go without one question about um prose poetry as we saw from the introduction you are very immersed in that prose poetry world and a number of the poems that you're going to read today are prose poems um is it is that a form that lends itself to the idea of travel or is it just a form that you use on any subject matter when you think the form fits?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I think because prose poetry is constructed out of sentences and paragraphs rather than lines and stanzas, you do travel differently in prose poetry. And I think prose poetry, I don't know, for me anyway, I think prose poetry is quite well suited to certain kinds of poetry around traveling and moving because, as the sort of sentences unwind in the prose poem, as it were, uh, you know, you kind of are moving through through a work in a different way from a lineated poem. But look, it's really hard to quite to demonstrate this conclusively. I mean, and, and quite a lot of my travel poems have been written in lineated form anyway. I mean, more generally, I've, I've been writing prose poetry since 2014, and it's a form which I never thought I would write and really really until about 2014 never had much interest in but it kind of grabbed me uh, partly I think through getting to know Cassandra Atherton who is a prose poet and who I think it helped me see possibilities in the form but also I think I was just ready for a different way of writing and prose poetry became that way it opened up, up expressive possibilities for me yeah.
0: So when you when you start to write a poem do you choose the form before you start or what happens how does it how does it how does it work
1: Yeah that's an interesting question I mean I, I I've been writing mainly prose poems so my default position as it were has been writing prose poetry in the last few years but I have written some lineated poems and and that's because those poems all those ideas those nascent ideas that are coming into being as a poem seem to want to be in a lineated form Uh, you know i guess in when i write poetry often i'm trying to explore certain kinds of terrain certain kinds of formal issues uh, trying to experiment or extend what i've done with a form so a lot of my work with prose poetry in the last few years has been trying to explore and examine what i can do with with prose poetry so Yeah, I tend to be writing a lot of prose poetry and starting with that and seeing what I can do with an idea in that form, but it's not exclusive.
0: Mm. All right, well, I suppose we should get to some poems.
1: Okay, well, look, um, shall I start with um, a poem about flight? Seeing as, uh, uh, you know, flight overseas at least is proving very difficult for Australians at the moment anyway. So this one's called Ascension. It's in two parts, one. Evening sits on the landscape like a serious word as we approach Washington DC. So many acres of privilege lie beneath divided wings and on the highway cars chase yellow headlights. We've not come here to find history. Yet since the body scanners bleep in Los Angeles, the flight has delivered losses wide cartography, overrun tribal lands given to potatoes, wheat and corn We don't belong in the air and below the lands a residue of palimpsests, none of which we read. On the edge of my seat, the remains of another flight's spilt coffee posit a bitter idea of the past. Two. Aeroplanes congregate like oversized gulls as a storm subsides and hundreds of schedules are hastily revamped. Wind scuffs the tarmac As we're rumblingly gathered into an ascension of air your last email rests in my imagination like an embrace but i don't understand its import it's about what we saw and did once when our feelings were were as expansive as a crossing of time zones when our bodies might have been winged you told me you traveled to me in dreams like a theme from an old chinese poem calligraphies of distance, twisted grasslands, floodplains, tundra, snowfields, desire that lifts like flight.
0: Yeah, um, so a bit of sort of personal resonance for me, um, I was in one of those cars chasing yellow headlights and driving around Washington DC and seeing those acres of privilege up close a number of years ago. So. It was fascinating for me because I had the ground view and, and you have the aerial view in this in this poem. But it struck me um, that there are any number of travels going on in this poem. There's not the single travel of the traveller in the plane because there's so many references to history, to things of the past, to um, the personal, uh, to the the... the farmland that was once tribal lands and so on. So you're actually referencing, mo- and I think you said this when you uh, were starting at the beginning to talk about the, these poems, you're referencing multiple, if you like, parallel travels.
1: Yeah, um, certainly for me, um, this this poem's partly based on an experience of sitting in an airplane in the US and, and kind of waiting for, Uh, you know, a a kind of a big queue of planes which a storm had disrupted to, you know, be able to be released one by one by the air controllers and finally get into the air. And, yeah, I was reflecting on, um, you know, a whole lot of issues. You know, in in Australia, the issue of Indigenous dispossession is such a major issue and very important to me as a person and something I think about quite a lot and going to America, um, you, you know, to fly over all that land which is being used for agriculture and so on and you know to sort of see as it were or not see the obliterated past of indigenous um, uh, Americans and to, um, to ponder you know that the idea of palimpsest is that beneath the modern landscape there's these other hidden landscapes which you can sometimes just glimpse or partially read and uh, they're largely obscured, but they're there, and they're kind of written into your experience, but also uh, disguised in a way. So, yeah, I reflected on that, and also, it's it, it always interests me how the personal connects with the larger historical moment, because I've 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 a long time been fascinated in history. My mother was a historian, actually, and and uh, history history for me, I've, I've often thought of it as being um, populated by all sorts of people, just like the people I know now, and I, I often sort of do a kind of an imaginative travel, which is to think about how those lives might be. Uh, for example, when I was in Pompeii once, I was and you know walking the streets. I did well; a lot, lot of people did, and just thought about, you know, what, what was what would it have been like to live here, to walk on these streets, to you know go to the baker's to to buy some food, uh, to go to the brothel, to to do all of that sort of stuff that you could see written in the, in the place and which uh, people very much like us would have been kind of employed in doing.
0: But there has to be a kind of um, receptivity to it because, I mean, any number of people could have been on that plane and not even thought about the tribal lands that you're going over. So, you um, know, in, in, in a way, what you're referencing is travel as an opening, being open um, to receive whatever it is that is out there. That you may encounter or or not depending on you know how receptive you are
1: yeah i mean i think that's that's true i mean i suppose i think of that that's a very interesting comment i suppose i think of that as part of what the poet i mean some poets might not agree with this but i, I think in terms of my poetry it, as a it is partly an opening or a, a kind of a tuning in or you know a trying to find ways into a receptivity that takes you further than, you know, your daily concerns. Even on airplanes, you know, I'm, like everyone else, I'm worried about, you know, when am I going to get my next drink or when's the food coming or how comfortable is the seat or whatever. But um, but also it's a chance, it's a space, it's an in-between space, I suppose, sitting on a plane away from, you know, the destination you're going to and the place you're leaving. And it's a, it's a time for me, for those sorts of places, in-between places, Uh, give an opportunity for reflection and to open out possibility and you know the the connection in the second part of that poem to old Chinese poems you know I love the Tang Dynasty poetry from China that I read in translation and and there's a lot of talk in those poems uh, which was such a great period of, of poetry of world poetry you know the Tang Dynasty was like the was such a was was the only equivalent period I can think of immediately is is the ancient Greek period in terms of the greatness of the literature or the Elizabethan period in the in England you know and the the poetry is so often in the in the Chinese about friend friendship and about abstinence and about parting and about dreams you know and uh how people connect in dreams and how uh the exigencies of life are kind of muted by connection of various different kinds and so, yeah, I mean, that that moment of trying to connect the sort of sensibility of those poems into the idea of an email that I've received and then take that out into to sort of extend that idea a bit further is, is something that, something that's always appealed to me, the, the small and the large and the in-between spaces all kind of connecting in a way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I did notice that, you know, there was, as I mentioned, a juxtaposition of, Strong imagery, and then all these abstract notions of history, privilege of the past, imagination, feelings, dreams, desire, distance, um, which is, I guess, what travel is about, isn't it? It's it's about exposing yourself to those to those things, Um, and also, I suppose, about pursuing tangents and going off in little rabbit holes and uh, the unexpected.
1: Um, Yeah, and I, I think that's true. I think poetry has to chase tangents of various kinds, because if it doesn't chase tangents, then it's likely just to be saying the same kinds of things that everybody says every day, whether they've got poetry or not. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think poetry is a kind of partly an art of the lateral. You know, what is what is it that really connects here that um, is, is new or, or unexpected or hasn't quite been thought of in this way in the past? And, and also with language, you know, how does language uh, speak differently from, you know, the everyday? What what can it haul in, as it were? What kind of, you know, what kind of lines can it throw out and what can it catch and bring back?
0: So when you write a poem like this and you're imagining a reader, what do you think you're trying to give the reader a sense of?
1: Um, I imagine, that's an interesting question. I imagine quite a lot of readers when I'm writing, so I don't just have... A reader, and I don't, and and sometimes I suppose sometimes a reader is myself. Some of my poems I write, kind of in a really introspect, in an introspective moment. But a lot of the times, I, I'm trying to think of a reader who, just the people I know, you know, who who do read my poetry, actual people who read my poetry, and what I'm I'm thinking of usually is is trying to connect with them and to share ideas and feelings and and kind of uh, create an encapsulation of something that. You know, is like a little parcel of words which might uh, connect with them and their experiences but which which might be fresh for them as well might not be might not be identical to something they've previously encountered so yeah for me poetry has always been about uh, both introspective moments about personal feeling and thought but also about connection connection for me is so important and travel for me is about connection too you know I, you, you there's so many ways of travelling, uh, literally doing the literal travelling, let alone the imaginative travel. And, you know, we've all, when we've travelled overseas, seen people who are, are, are moving in and out of spaces but aren't that interested in connecting with the people in them. Yeah. Um, they, they bring their own uh, presuppositions and their assumptions and they take them in and they take them out and they're probably not much changed by travel. Uh, for me, travel is uh, a chance to open myself to, you know, uh, sometimes actually, actually to parts of myself which I hadn't understood or hadn't realised I possessed or might want to acquire. And it's also a form of kind of listening. You know, travel, travelling is a way of listening. I don't really want to go into that right at the moment because we've only got a certain amount of time. But I think that ties into the receptivity notion that um, you were talking about earlier.
0: Yeah, I could just keep talking to you, Paul, but I suppose we'd better go on with some more <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, Well, look, I might just uh, read a poem. I'm I'm not going to read that many poems today. It's it's nice to chat. I I want to read a poem that's unpublished, I think, actually, about reading and writing as transportative. And in this case, um, this is is sort of two people who have written letters to one another, and it's a prose poem. It's it's just called Reading. Um, They read the old letters just a few ribboned in orange and green. She wrote of traveling far, trying to settle down, how she felt like a moth on a wide lit screen. He wrote of his body rushing towards hers as if through a funnel. She spoke of feeling the soft shirt on his back despite absence of waiting to peel it off. He wrote of tulips reddening the Garden of ways to make a good home brew. They sat in the faint glow that the cursive scripts gathered, hers like an insect running on glass, his like a stick being pushed through glue. She was silent for hours. He dug short rows laying in bulbs.
0: Yes, I mean it's almost an antiquated notion now reading old letters. There's, nobody writes them anymore well they do it by emails or, or whatever <laughs> um, yes. I used to be a great letter writer and I've got I got volumes and volumes of letters that um, people have sent me over the years that I've never gone back and reread but it would be an interesting exercise to do it um, so this is um, transportative in the sense of memory um, reconnecting with former selves or others Um uh, who you were at the time that you wrote the letters or who they were at the time that they wrote the letters, uh, rediscovering anew, perhaps old feelings, long forgotten and lost? Is that what you're channelling here?
1: Yeah, it's about, it's about all of those things and also about uh, something I'm very interested in, which is the way artefacts uh, from the past, whether it's in people's personal lives or whether we're talking about, you know, archaeological sites, um, things that remain... Uh, have all sorts of resonances. And those resonances are often uh, quite personal and can touch you really quite deeply in a kind of almost a punctum sense, almost a, a moment of being pricked by the feeling or the emotion. And um, yeah, these this is a sort of a, a, just a he, she poem about how people uh, connect through correspondence in this case. But they also remain very different people and their sense of connection is both powerful but does not um, alter their, their continuing sense of separation as well. And, and for me, that's, that's quite an important thing. You know, if we don't sentimentalise human relationships, I think we understand that people, uh, when they relate to one another, bring two lots of separateness together and join those, join partially those those separate selves, those separate identities. Uh, sometimes the connections are very strong, but uh, the, identity, the separate identities are not subsumed, never fully subsumed by the other person. And it's always a mistake, I think, for people to think that might be happening. That is that, you know, for example, the most obvious and perhaps slightly cliche example is love. You know, does love, does, if you love someone, do you kind of subsume them? Or uh, is it a kind of mutual subsuming of identity? Of course it's not. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a lot of the mistakes in our culture to, are to do with mistaken ideas around uh, these kinds of notions, actually.
0: Well, I've noticed how um, two people can experience the same event in completely different ways. Yeah. So, you know, that's illustrative of the point you're making. Um, but there's also... Um, in reading old letters, there's also the possibility of surprise um, of, uh, I mean, I've read, I've read letters that I wrote and I think I didn't realize that I knew that then because it's something I, it's a belief I hold now. Did I hold it way back then? You know, Um, there's some continuity as well. And again, it's your sort of sense of connection through these weavings between, between people and their letters and their relationships. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I, I think that I think that uh, texts of all kinds, whether they're letters you've written yourself or that somebody else has written to you, or whether they're novels you've read or poems, you know, uh, they are continually evolving, you know, they're not the same thing. Uh, It's your example is a really good one, you know, where you Uh, you look back on something you've written or somebody else has written to you and you think i don't remember it like that or i don't don't remember being like that or thinking those things or feeling those things even if you know before looking at the the letter you might have had quite a strong memory of how you thought you were Um, i think i think that the artifacts the things that exist in the world that come from the past remind us that we uh we, we don't stay the same that as people as selves as identities we're evolving all the time and particularly if we are receptive in the way that you and I were chatting about earlier that we we take on take take into ourselves all sorts of new ideas and and the old things look I was I was just um actually I had a quick look at a a book of mine just before this interview, because I was trying to remember what it was about. And I was quite surprised. I was quite surprised by rereading it. I just skim read it again and thought, oh, you know, that book's different from the way I remember it. I only published it about three or four years ago. But it's it belonged to a moment, and the moment is receding from me. And as I was reading it, I thought, oh, you know, I'm really glad I wrote that book, if only because it reminds me that I was thinking about those kinds of things.
0: Mm, Yeah. Mm. Another poem?
1: Yeah, so look, I'll just uh, move on to um, a poem, which is an earlier poem than the ones I've just read. And this is a lineated poem, and it's called The Library of Lost Books, and it picks up some of the themes we've just been chatting about. The Library of Lost Books. This is a place you can't find, though its chimney stacks catch fire at vision's edge and inside long mahogany shelves line domed exacting rooms. Those histories eaten by worms or crumbled to dust in old jars. The philosophies, epics and plays thrown out when empires were ruined or recently trashed in Iraq. Each edition or version sits here. Bits of ancient papyrus are reconstituted entire the Mayan books and their glyphs disinterred from hot Spanish fires. But a smell of anguish pervades. The attendants are busy with new acquisitions from modern warfare, the death of civilised places. In the dusk, a voice starts to read from a book in the building and fades. The library, like smoke, disappears.
0: Yeah, I love, I love the title. Um... It's the sort of title that sort of hooks me in every time. If I, (laughs) the library of lost books. Um, And then you have a shattering first line, in a way. This is a place you can't find. And I'm just wondering if this poem is as much about futility as it is about anything else.
1: About futility? Mm. Um, It's about, maybe. I mean, it depends, I suppose, how you think about futility. I mean, I suppose it's, it's partly about how we need to protect um, what we have. You know, we've got, and this goes back to what we're talking about with the the things we possess, whether they're letters or they're uh, parts of ancient culture, you know, statues, books, whatever. Um, if we don't care for and protect uh, what we have as cultural inheritance and try to understand it, even if we don't like all of it, then we're diminishing our... the the cultural record, the cultural memory, the things which add true complexity to our lives. And, uh, yeah, this is a poem about an imagined library of all the books that have been vanished and destroyed. And, you know, part of what prompted that poem was that when the Americans went into Iraq, they protected the oil wells and so on with a great deal of care, but they didn't protect the museums and the libraries with the same degree of assiduousness. And we saw a lot of looting and destruction and stealing of stuff, some of which has been recovered since, but uh, some of which gets destroyed. And these things are not replaceable. Uh, some of the books that are destroyed in in these sort of circumstances, there's only a few copies, particularly if they're old, ancient texts. and Uh, you know, reminds me of the the burning of the ancient Alexandria library, which which had, among other things we know from the records, nine uh, books of poetry by Sappho that had been organised by the Alexandrian librarians. Well, now we have many tiny fragments and nearly five full poems from the greatest uh, woman poet of antiquity and the greatest, probably the greatest lyric poet of antiquity of either gender. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of level of destruction, uh, you know, why don't we learn from it and care more? But then I think maybe human beings, part of the failure of humanity is that it doesn't care for the things that it should care for as much as a lot of things that it should care for less, like, you know, money and acquisition and power and so on.
0: Yeah, well, there's all, all of us still here writing poems, aren't we? But. Um... When you start off, you know, this is a place you can't find and you finish, the library-like smoke disappears. To me, what I get from that is an overwhelming sense of the transience of, of things, that everything ultimately is lost, that nothing ultimately can be preserved. It's, it's it, Whatever preservation goes on, if it's, you know, a few millennia, um, in the scheme of things, it's nothing, is it? So that's where I sort of thought about the idea of futility, that uh, ultimately... Yeah. Yeah, no,
1: that's true, David. I mean, I think one of the things for me as a poet is I I kind of just think if you're an art creative artist of any kind, and it's not unfortunately that kind of activity, which is so valuable and, and, you know, which has been valued by so many cultures and societies and isn't very well valued in Australia or other parts of the world at the moment. If you engage in that activity, you're making some small contribution to... You know, what I hope, you know, in my case, are making some very small contribution to a continuing renewal of of culture and the recognition of its importance and you know ways of communicating, ways of saying complex things, not just the, the banal kind of things which I say, you know, a lot of the time in my non-poetic world, you know, things about what I'm eating or cooking or where I'm going to go today or whatever, all that stuff has to be said. But if that's all we had, we'd have a very impoverished world. So yeah, poetry is one small contribution to the renewal of complex culture.
0: Mm. And at the end of the day, the, the history of humanity is to reach what, as far as it can reach and to grasp what can't be grasped and to keep on the quest for it. So we want those lost books, we want to preserve, we want to keep those books, we want to find those books, we want to have those books, we want more of those books. It doesn't ever stop. It's part of what makes us who we are.
1: Yeah, and, and being part of of a tradition uh, matters to me. I, I kind of, for, for me, Writing poetry is a way of, of thinking about other poets who've written and so on. And um, joining in the conversation, not just with you know, potential, potential readers today, but with, I, I see kind of poetry and literature more general as a human conversation that's been going on you know, for a very long time and, and which I just want to be part of that conversation. Okay. So maybe I'll read a poem called Rooms so it's a three-part prose poem. Um, Rooms. One, when you are in the desert and undulations of dunes slide toward you, you may remember a room. Under shiny stars, in the cold sweep of night, you hold that room close. And in blade-like morning, when light strikes the ground like scattered gemstones, you may stare at distance and know that room, as if it were in your body, a place in which you're strong, no matter how small its dimensions. It is like a skin that knows the flow of your blood. It's where you discovered the value of limitation. Two, sometimes it contains a staircase, at other times it's small and square, spare, smelling of plum cake and tart kumquat liqueur spilled on linoleum. Occasionally, it has ornate furniture and colourful half pulled drapes. A boy hides behind a chest. A girl rubs a dress's green satin between fingers. A dog pants. A bath runs nearby. A girl stands on tiptoe, looking through a cobweb window. Later, the boy sucks the inside of her thigh and she holds onto his hair. Sometimes the room is elongated high in a building. There are dark floorboards, light squeezes through shutters. 3. Rooms are informed by what's no longer there. Light that wonders at you lying in a cot. Space circling, dark drowning. Walls like an unfixed firmament of mind. You grow up and forget those rooms, but they cling. Become stairs without end. An intimate boudoir of dreaming. A lit mystery behind doors, always old fashioned as if belonging to a different century. They are like early touch, haunting every exploration.
0: Yeah, I wondered when I read this poem um, why you didn't just keep writing about more and more rooms. You just could <laughs> <laughs> just kept going. It's so good. Um, you, you gave me a little note saying this is. Um, dreaming as personal journey
1: yeah
0: we go places in dreams that are unexpected uh, we travel kind of without a destination in sight and and just go where it, where it goes um, and it can be very rich for me it's always dreams has always been about corridors funnily enough uh, sure. and never getting to the end of them um, but I like the idea of rooms here because they are ordinarily they are contain spaces, um, but each one has its own history, has its own DNA, if you like. It's got its own uh, furnishings. It's got its own people having passed through it. It's got its own story. We we know the the idea of if if you know if the walls could talk, um, and and uh, you're evoking for me this sort of sense of travel. Through dreams, but but room is a very sort of powerful way of doing that. Is that what you had in mind?
1: Yeah, that's a nice encapsulation of a lot of what I did have in mind. You know, rooms. Uh, we spend so much of our time in rooms, and uh, I think often you know rooms are one of those things where we can take them for granted. But if we stop and think about the, the kind of associations and uh, I used the word resonances earlier, the, the kind of resonances associated with rooms, and also with memory and identity, then I think they are repositories. That kind of thinking uh, reveals how they are repositories of all sorts of of things. And yeah, the poem, that sort of poem was trying to get at that really, and and trying to uh, examine a a sense of uh, the kind of way in which confined spaces expand. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in the ideas and ideas of how small things in our lives often expand figuratively, metaphorically uh, through their associations or their significances. Um, and sometimes, of course, there's vice versa. You, you're in a large space, for example, and it kind of sh- seems to shrink in towards you. I mean, those kinds of experiences interest me, and I think poetry deals quite well with them if you can kind of find the key into that particular moment.
0: Mm. So um, in terms of travel, um, this poem is exploring uh, imaginative travel.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean for, for me, the, the kind of idea of, of dreaming in a sort of broader sense, including not only the dreams we have at night, but daydreams and kind of the, the po- poetic dreaming that is part of, I think, creating a lot of poetry. Not all poetry is created through a sort of dreaming process, but I think a lot is. Uh, that kind of imaginative travel, I I think, it often is a... Is c- is a way of connecting uh, present concerns with uh, past preoccupation, things which p- perhaps are resident in memory but had been forgotten, or a um, kind of a signi- way of bringing significances to light which had been dark until then. And and I think uh, again, it's it's a sense of broader connection. I'm really interested in that. And uh, you know, I think one of the things that Interests me is is the idea of an identity that is um, uh, a longitudinal longitudinal identity that is that you know you can be an adult at a certain age, but part of your active dynamic identity that's informing you right this moment, can actually be coming from when you were three or six or twelve, and and that sort of you know in that sense you can have multiple identities or or, or kind of versions of yourself actively sort of jostling away inside you. So, yeah, the poem's partly trying to get at some of those ideas as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, you carry all those selves. We all carry all those selves within us, the inner child. I think that it's never dead. uh, I think
1: poets need their inner child.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) All right, you have another poem for us.
1: Okay. Well, look, um, I wrote a book um, called Gallery of Antique Art, which is a small book. um, And it came out of a, I was lucky enough to get an Australia Council literature section residency in Rome uh, in 2015 and 16. I was there for six months and I absolutely loved my time in Rome. And and I didn't actually, I, I went there to do a certain project, which was to do with Uh, some of the visual art in Rome and writing poetry around that and so on but I didn't initially have this book in mind it just grew out of the experience and without going into the details of it the book is essentially uh, taking the reader, you know, as if they through as it it kind of sets up the idea of a gallery, a, an art gallery, which doesn't actually exist. I've populated it with kind of paintings and, and references that I like and I'm interested in from a variety of different places. But as you read it, the idea is that you're walking through this gallery. And I'll just read a, a couple of prose poems from it. Um, the Etruscan, it refers to Caravaggio's rendering of John the Baptist. Caravaggio painted at least eight versions of John the Baptist. So, you know, that's a a really important motif in his work. And it also refers to the Etruscan sarcophagus of the spouses, which is a beautiful sculpture from the Etruscan period. You know, the Romans uh, eventually overran the Etruscans after learning a lot from them and educating their children in Etruscan schools and so on. But um, it's, it, what, what remains of Etruscan sculpture has a different sensibility from the Roman sculpture. Uh, it, there's a lot of personal intimacy and uh, that the Etruscans demonstrate between men and women. And it looks as if the Etruscans had a much more equal idea of the relationships between men and women than the Romans did. So this is called Second Room Perambulation because we're walking through the second room of this notional gallery. For minutes at a time, we stand in different postures, trying them on for size. Anonymous men and women look back with oddly captivating eyes, yet they do not see us. In Caravaggio's rendering, John the Baptist sits inside an abstract dream. Young though he is, he might be considering Salome. As he does so, lovers' portraits beguile old walls like a confusion of memories, hundreds of beautiful gazes and clothes. The Etruscan sarcophagus of the spouses is delicate in its reassembled terracotta. The figures look towards eternity, reaching for vanished wine. And I'll just uh, follow that with um, another shortish piece from, later in the in the book. So we've walked a bit further through the gallery and uh, we've got to the ninth room, uh, perambulation. So we're again, walking through that. Um, it's interesting, I mean, this is set, this sort of notional gallery is set in Rome, hence the reference to the Tiber or the Tiber River. But um, I just want to mention the Virgin. You know, there's a lot of paintings through many centuries of uh, the Virgin Mary, and some of them, depict her with Jesus, and there's this really strange, ambiguous relationship in many of these works of art, expressed in different ways, you know, she is the Virgin, she is aware that Jesus will die, and yet she's holding him as a mother holds a child, and there's uh, these are the grounds for great ambiguous feeling, and the blue that is mentioned, you know, there's the Marian blue that is in many of these paintings, which is... Ultramar- ultramarine uh, pigment, which was made by the grinding up of lapis lazuli, you know, the semi-precious stone, which, you know, back in the past in, in, in part of history was more expensive than gold. So, you know, to use, this, to use this paint for Mary's clothes was deeply symbolic and significant of all sorts of values. Um, it's a short poem, ninth room, perambulation. I'm standing quietly and a painting speaks of how there were floods for nearly a week and not far from here the Tiber rose. But after all, a tour's arrived and a guide's instructing her group. It's neat how he's painted her feet. They move on and I examine again the Virgin with crucified child. Desert sun bakes the blue of her grief. It's almost all she knows and grace she carries divinity that dies the world's long heaviness she'd hold him forever if time would stand still she'd let him go if she could
0: how many um how many poems are in that book how many rooms and formulations?
1: Ah uh, well it's i can't remember exactly how many but there's probably 50 or so i mean it's a it kind of takes you through this notional gallery and also takes you into the gift shop and the courtyard and so on. So um, it, for me, it was a way of reflecting on um, a lot of the kind of different meanings that art, visual art has for me. And it's played such a big part in my life. I I can't imagine life without paintings and sculpture and and various other forms of visual art. And in fact, had I not written poetry, I think I would have been a painter because um, I almost love painting, not that I do very much of it, but um, I've got no particular skill in it, but but I almost love the physical act of painting um, sometimes more than I like the physical act of writing poetry. Although I must say there are moments when writing poetry is a sheer joy. Uh, a lot of the time it's just hard yakka, but, but there are times when it's sheer joy. But yeah, painting for me has been a huge part of my, Thinking And, you know, when I was in Rome for those six months, I just spent so much time in galleries and to the extent where I became sort of super saturated uh, by looking at art. And after I came back, I couldn't, I really resisted going to too many art galleries because I was still digesting all the visual imagery that was floating about inside me somewhere.
0: These two poems are almost like little paintings of their own because they're so visual. And and when you read them or when I read them, I get the picture in my head yep. that you're describing. It's uh, it's well done. Um, are these, would you regard these as ekphrastic poems or just more observational poems or highly imaginative poems? Where, where do they sit?
1: Well, I mean, they're kind of ekphrastic. I mean, they, they, these poems as a whole in this book, uh, some of them are ekphrastic, that is, they are responding directly to an actual work of visual art. Um, some of them are kind of notionally ekphrastic, you know. I mean, notional ekphrasis is really just where you're. I mean, like Browning's "To My Last Duchess" is an example. You know, you, although that poem probably did connect to an actual painting, but you know, if you've imagined a work of art that doesn't exist and you've created it in a poem, and and by evoking evoking this imagined work of art, you're you then you then responding to it. Well, that's notional ekphrasis, and I I guess uh, some of the prose poems in, in this book are notional crisis and yeah some of them are yeah just more generally observant as you say you know they're they're ways of uh, mediating between the viewer uh and the art and you know in some cases I'm trying to get the art to speak as it were through the poems so it's I want to I'm, I'm I'm really interested always been really interested in the way uh, if you're looking at a work of art you know often the art is speaking or looking at you as much as you're speak, you know looking at it and perhaps speaking about it and in fact if you in some exhibitions if I give myself up to the exhibition it's almost like I'm being I don't know privy to a, a, a conversation going on in the gallery which is silent if you listen but it's it's uh, I, I can almost hear the hear the language of utterance which is surrounding me
0: well, it taps into the, I mean, that relationship between the art and the viewer, it Taps it taps into uh, that notion that, that we've seen in film and in literature of um, people going into the artwork or the artwork coming out into the real world, um, that that, that that sometimes the boundaries between the art and the reality dissolve and, and, and you can immerse yourself in it or it can immerse itself in you. Uh, you're tapping into that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think... Um it's interesting, you know, in the Western world, you know, with our in our current culture, very kind of materialist culture in a way, you know, we, and a very individualist culture, we kind of have this, what I think of a, a basically is a false idea, you know, that we're individuals standing apart and, you know, gazing at, looking at, observing, uh, making judgments, um, kind of able separately to exist and, you know, do our own thing. But I don't think that's the nature of experience at all. I, I think we if anyone thinks that's how they're living, then I then I either think they're missing something about the possibilities of the world or they're just misguided. You know, if we open, we, we talked right at the beginning of this interview about uh, kind of receptivity. I, I, I think, you know, if you think about the ways in which we're always self-narrating, creating identities for ourselves, creating fictions for ourselves which are part of our identities and then we look at other forms of representation that say visual artists have made or other writers or whomever it may be then you know we realize we can realize that quite quickly that there's a whole lot of competing narrative stories representations going on and they're all jostling around us and we're just part of that that jostle and you know as a writer if you kind of start listening to the other voices there's a hell of a lot to
0: hear everything everything's a canvas
1: well in a way yeah metaphorically speaking you know all the world's a stage everything's a canvas i think we i think our existences are much more intermeshed and fluid and and so on than we typically think and and you know from from the point of view of just living day to day we've got to assume that you know the traffic light will change you know from red to green or whatever we expect and so we can get on with our lives but you know when we're away from you know those immediate moments of having to make decisions about just what we're doing day to day you know we can start listening and and looking uh, much more broadly and sympathetically i think
0: mm. all right We've got some more poems
1: okay so look come um, I, I thought i'd um I thought I'd move on to just a little poem, which I wrote quite a long time ago. Um, it's sort of ref- a reflection on mortality, but it's also trying to do a few other things as well. That's um, called Scarf Light. Among the leaning willows, a scarf light of women in gorgeous colors, a flickering of branches and the river, like a generous idea winding along the hills, your body called in the erratic breeze and still our children yelling in the water flushed and cool. When this life is over, what will be left except tatters and tears of sunlight? These green plants, the gathering of people in their colours and the voyage of thought splashing among the stars as someone lies here, smiling, breathing lightly, a shining scarf thrown upon the
0: earth. Yeah. I'm a sucker for poems like this, Paul. Um, I mean, I just love the idea of scarf light, um, and it's it's if it's about mortality, it's a it's a, it's the most joyous way of looking at it. It's a beautiful way of looking at it because what it's telling us is that every moment is precious, that love is that life is is beautiful and to be valued, and that as we go through it and carry ourselves through each age and acquire whatever. You know knowledge or wisdoms we acquire there is there is beauty in that and that we can celebrate everything great and small from you know the erratic breeze uh to the branches to voyages of thought to sunlight and that you know in this way if we have this perspective everything is a celebration
1: yeah i mean i think you, you've, you've summarized quite a lot of what i was trying to get at in the poem and i'm actually Thrilled that it's communicated to you in that way because I—it's I, a hard—I found it a hard poem to write. I, it's a long time ago I wrote it, but I remember tinkering, tinkering with it quite a bit to try to get create a poem that captured that sort of the importance of the evanescent things, the, the fleeting things, but but which also conveyed the you know substantiality and 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 solidity and persistence of those things as well. And for me, you know, light—the idea of light—is, I suppose, it comes back to you know, we're talking about painting and and perception and and light, so much part of that in terms of the visual visual imagery and and what we see and 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 so this poem was also about one of the one of the poems I've written about the importance of light to me, you know, what light shows, how light uh, kind of intrudes itself into us, and and how it's how it's so uh, kind. I I suppose it's a a poem partly about some of the revelations that light offers, but they're they're not the grand revelations of, you know, say, you know, big religions. These are the smaller, but I think equally important, revelations of the day-to-day, the quotidian, the the moments that we encounter.
0: That we can easily forget if we don't pay attention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things about... um, about poetry, so I think poetry can 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 pay that attention and look at uh, try to kind of evoke some of the textures of the world, uh, some of the things we touch, that taste, smell. Uh, you know, for me, for example, the scarf light is not only the way the scarf um, fluctuates in the light and uh, responds to light and so on, but it's also the the quality of of. The colours of scarves, and then their te- their textural uh, kind of, I mean, certain kinds of material. The textures of material kind of rubs up against light in certain ways, and mm. and those sorts of ideas inform this poem in terms of trying to get at those complex intermeshings. You know, some of which are quite they're almost tangible. You know, I, 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 when I'm writing poems some of them I'm trying to feel the poem through my fingers Mm. as I'm, as I'm writing them.
0: Mm. Well, you had light coming up through the floorboards in your rooms poem. So it's, it's not, I mean, you know that I'm obviously preoccupied with light in my work and uh, I've been told that it's kind of like the most overused um, thing in poetry, um, but I can't really get away from it. Uh, It's, it's, it's about shedding light on things, too, isn't
1: it? It is. yeah. I mean actually that's interesting. you make that comment, and you, you write beautifully about light in your work and and if somebody has said to you that it's you know so overused, well, I kind of think why does that need to be said? You know, a lot of the things that art or poetry, visual art, whatever it does has been done before, but that's not a reason not to do it again. Yeah. You know, I, I was um, somebody once said to me a long time ago, I can't remember what exactly what they said, but the gist was, you know, Paul, you know, you use quite a lot of abstractions in your poetry. That's really quite hard to do, you know, should you be doing that? And I just said, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's hard to use abstractions in poetry, but, you know, there's all the resources of the language you're working in, and if you don't try the best you can, whatever your limitations or failings might be to, to make best use of all of those, you know, resources of the language you have, then what are you doing? I mean, I'm not to, you know, somebody might just want to write short images poems and I admire I admire that kind of enterprise, but if you, but for in my case, you know, I I want to sort of reach out into various directions. And I think a poem like Skyflight is, you know, when I was writing it, I thought it's a little bit risky because uh, it's a kind of poem where, you know, yeah, People have written about light in some related ways in the past, but I I did feel I had my own moment uh, that I wanted to capture that connected to that. And this goes back to the... Your own slant of light. Sorry, what's that? Your own
0: slant of light.
1: Exactly. Yeah, perfect. My my own slant.
0: (laughs) Um, So, um, I mean, poetry in this way is archaeological. You're always digging. Yeah. so you're using language in whatever way you can to dig around and and you're using the abstractions you the concepts you're using whatever you can as you say to present something maybe in a fresh way
1: yep absolutely and you know in terms of travel you know i i i see um that act of seeing that poetry offers as and, and i've indicated that right throughout this interview you know i see that act of seeing of witness i guess and observation and interpretation as as one of the most important forms of travel that poetry can offer and not only to the writer but to the reader as well a way of you know for me it's a reading poems is a way of entering into uh, a place you know whether it's room-like or landscape-like or gallery-like or whatever it may be and moving through that place imaginatively I don't see the act of reading or of writing as static at all. It's, it's, it's always for me an evolving dynamic space.
0: And it's not skimming the surface either. You need to go beyond that.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I love the surface effects of poetry, but yeah, I've always thought that poetry needs to penetrate beneath the surfaces as well. And mm-hmm. um, not everyone would agree about that, but, but for me, that's been part of my journey. You, we're, we're back to the journey work. In my journey as a poem poet is to try to, you know, see and register the surfaces and also to um, move and travel beyond them as well, so.
0: And you've got, how many more poems you've got? Six, six different windows you've got. Is there any, any more poems you've got to read?
1: Um, yeah, shall I, shall I read? Um, I might go back to Six Different Windows because it's a travel poem and it's about being in a foreign place and it connects with some of the ideas. Um, When I mention a word I'm going to pronounce as Elie Berge, uh, it's a Iberian um, uh, kind of um, settlement that grew up near Granada in Spain and was eventually overrun by Romans. So six different windows being stretched across landscapes. You find sensations are yet to arrive from earlier destinations the slant of sun through six different windows, views of nine Baroque cathedrals, a street vendor shouting out, but that was in a different country. Losing those important connections that clung to inflections and gestures, you barely lay your feet on soil while reading guidebooks handling pottery and beginning to understand you've never lived as expansively as you believed. You push open a shutter to reveal the Sierra Nevada. Imagine Roman legions assembling in the valley two millennia ago, bringing to Herberge their efficient language and civilization, knowing it as alien territory, speaking words like ultimatum to the shifting incorrigible air.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, this poem speaks to me of you know, the transience and dislocation of travel, of going from place to place in such quick time that you actually don't ever immerse yourself in any of them. Um, and, And there we are. We have that superficial relationship to places, but we have glimpses of what lies beyond that. And the windows are things that you look through that are barriers between yourself and the outside world, but the windows offer you, those glimpses that then engage your sensibilities engage your mind engage your imagination and away you go
1: yeah that's true I mean this this poem was a reflection on that that kind of weird of almost sort of disassociation dissociation you get when you're traveling and and yeah you've gone to a lot of different places and you, you feel part of you is still somewhere else you know in a previous place where you were staying or perhaps in a number of previous places. So you've become sort of fragmented and fractured. And that's that's almost a bodily, a weird bodily sensation, yeah. And and also it's it's a kind of reflection, I suppose, in reverse, on on the importance of connection, because in the experiences it sort of begins with, as this, this poem begins with, is is somebody who's who's not connecting and is not connected and has kind of lost themselves. Uh, and I guess, I guess, uh, somewhere in this poem is the idea of the importance of connection to place or places uh, in our lives, and how, as we travel through our lives, uh, how well we do or don't make those connections uh, really matters and and is important.
0: Uh, I, I travelled for a number of years, Paul, and I remember encountering someone who had encountered someone who had travelled for nineteen years and was no longer able to connect. Yeah. He'd been because that dislocation was so part of who he had become that it was almost impossible for him to connect with people.
1: Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, I think some people are more resilient in terms of being able to do without sort of the connections that sometimes we call home or country or or you know place or, or whatever we call them. Uh, uh, I think for most of us, those things are at least relatively important. And for me, they're they're very important, not that I haven't shifted around and lived in different places, and I really value that. And I also value, even if I'm travelling to a place just for a few days, if I can feel a sense of connection, however fleeting with that place, I value that very much. But there are some kinds of experiences and connections, which for me depend very much on a sustained relationship, a relationship to place, a relationship to landscape a relationship to the people within the communities that belong in that place. I mean, even um, in a country where there's, um, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps I I felt like when I was in Rome for six months, I felt I was a foreigner the whole time. But because I was there for six months and I I went to the same supermarket regularly, got to know some of the people, got to know some of the places and the the streets. and. kind Of undulations of the landscape and the, some of the archaeology, and I started to dream my way into Rome. And so I, I can never think of Rome now without thinking of my thinking it as a kind of dreaming place of my own in a small way. You know, Rome's obviously a massive place with an extraordinary history, and it, it, it Rome, as it were, doesn't think of me, but I think of Rome as <laughs> a as a, as a one of my dreaming places, and it was because I did a lot of walking around. I, I stayed in Trastevere, uh, which is got a lot of, which is a wonderful place, old history, um, medieval uh, architecture to some extent, lovely markets. And I walked, you know, 20, 25 minutes to and fro, you know, many days of each week, um, buying cheese, eating and drinking, looking around, taking a few photographs, you know, whatever. And as I did so, I, I really did dream myself into that place. And I mean, I'm sure the Romans wouldn't recognize my dream of Rome, but it, it, it was a remarkable experience. And, and I needed I needed that six months. I couldn't have done that in even a week or a month. I needed, I really needed time to settle and allow it to surround me.
0: Yeah. And you've got one more poem, have you?
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got um, another poem here, and this is um, a poem that is a kind of reflection on memory and mortality which is one of the themes I've connected uh, a bit to travel today and the travel idea and this is from a book called um, Palace of Memory and um, actually I might read it from the book it's number 62 in in this sequence of poems which is a reflection on on the way Memory is really quite unstable. You know, we rely, the, the book as a whole reflects on that. You know, we rely on memory. We often feel very convinced that we have very powerful, clear memories of things which we would swear were the truth. But actually, I think the truth is that memory shifts and eddies and and changes. Even as we uh, look at certain memories, they change. We clasp him to us like a package of light the child who ran towards the reeds. But our hands are flexing, our thoughts are travelling away. We open arms and the world rushes in. A line of cars leaves the picnic ground. Coats and scarves are left on yellowed grass. We look at water floating with debris, reflecting the canopy of elm and oak. We see the creek's channel run towards a diminishing gleam. Where we stand. There have been too many footsteps.
0: The world rushes in. It does. Um, when I read this, uh, each line or sentence in the poem could almost stand as a standalone memory. And then, but then you link them. Um, there, there's something disconnected between them, but but you connect them. Um, and for all the detail, there's something nebulous. And I suppose this is the unreliability of memory that you're talking about, that it's, it's shifty, it's fluid. Um, the last line speaks of what came before, which we can only sense or intuit but never know, which makes me think that we inhabit the present, we, we inhabit the moment, and that to get anywhere else, whether it's in time or in place, we have to travel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's true. I think what you just said is absolutely right. Uh, travel is 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 partly about just our movement, a constant movement, the necessary movement through time and space. And as we know, time and space are intricately um, and inextricably connected to one another. And our sense of time and our sense of space, you know, are, are kind of depend on on one another. So. Yeah, you know, memory is, we know that uh, the mind, the brain stores memory by distributing um, memory uh, through different parts of of the brain. And then when we remember things, it brings back these rather disparate collections of things. And there is a kind of, you, you said the word nebulous, I think is spot on. There is a kind of nebulous quality to a lot of memory, no matter how precise and particular some people you know, think their memories may be. And and yeah, I, when I wrote Palace of Memory, I, I thought to myself, can I really write about this quality of memory, the, the one you've just described, because it's risky, it might, it kind of does it, will it make successful prose poems? And I thought, well, I'm gonna have a go anyway, because I really wanted to try to capture that sense of the distributed and fragmented nature of memories and the way those distributed, um, recollections as it were those distributed bits or bytes of information come back together and also the weirdness of weirdness of a lot of memories that is they don't fully cohere like you know when i'm when i'm remembering something in my normal day-to-day you know i would say i'm thinking about my being with my parents when i was a kid and i might be thinking about i was jumping off a rock and you know swimming in a creek or something that seems like quite a coherent memory until i really examine it and realize that actually there's a whole lot of gaps and I have filled in some of those gaps and other things are missing which I can't really imagine but I'm kind of assuming it was like this assuming it was like that and the more you examine memory I think um, the more memory starts to retreat from the moment of examination and then that raises a question is you know given that memory and recollection are the main enabler of the self-narration that enables us to claim identity, you know, because without memory, we would not be able really to claim our identities, then that raises a question of what are our, are our identities really made of? Yeah. And I think they're made of fragmented and quite strongly fictionalised ideas. Yeah. And so Palace of Memory is kind of about some of those notions. This is a little excerpt from it is giving a flavor flavour of it. But the book as a whole also tries to present a sort of a, a kind of whole lot of different glancing perspectives on what my memory might might be and what we can say about it, which sometimes I think is less than I would hope, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: it's full of perforations, isn't it? <laughs> full
1: of what, sorry?
0: Perforations.
1: Yeah, perforation. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a nice word for it, yeah. Uh,
0: Paul, thank you so much for letting us travel with you today. Uh, it's been wonderful. Could have... Kept on going and going, but have to wind it up. Um, thank you so much. When this video is posted, uh, it will include information on how to obtain copies of Paul's books, so look out for that. Um, Poets Corner will be back next month with another poet uh, on another theme. Please join us then.
1: Bye. Thank you so much, David. Thank you very much.